When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Catastrophize, 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 catastrophize. I don't want to catastrophize, but it seems to me that public discourse is uh, raging at an all time raging high. And I was scrolling through Twitter the other day and I saw a thread by Stephen Klaus, who's a professor at an undisclosed Midwest university. And he began to tug apart in a very philosophical and even-handed manner the, the emotions that are currently being politicized or the politicization that is currently so emotional. So I reached out to him and he granted me an interview and for for about an hour, you guys get to listen to him pick apart what's going on and to begin to ask certain questions that I believe lead us toward figuring out how to keep this, the ship itself from rocking too much. Yeah, there, there's troubled waters. We're always going to be in troubled waters. But if we can't dwell in a certain sort of manner on the same boat, then we're not going to be able to figure out how to navigate forward. We're not going to be able to do it. So I hope that you find this interview as helpful and insightful as I did. This is Stephen Klaus. Yeah, my major concentration in political philosophy is the ancient stuff. So that's why I'm writing on Aristotle. Um, and then I do American political thought as well. What do you mean American political thought? In which uh, era? I focus mostly on, most of my training has been on uh, Abraham Lincoln oh. and then uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the French writer. Okay. And so, so is that like, uh, did Alexis inform the founding fathers or did their ideas no, he's, come in later? He's after he's, um, his book gets published in 1835 and 1840. So he's hmm. 70 years after though. I know, I mean, I know the Federalist papers and the anti-federalists and, um, of them, I probably know Jefferson the best. So, huh. um, I dabble. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to speak with you because, uh, principally because there was a short Twitter thread that you put out mm-hmm. about the Kavanaugh situation mm-hmm. that, that framed it in a way that was not partisan. It was, it was kind of psychological, but you were basing it out of Aristotle's idea of anger. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And I, don't have it all to mind. Could you, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, um, so that's usually what I try to do on my Twitter account, which I know is unusual for Twitter. I try not to be partisan, um, w- which no one can ever do 100% of the time. <laughs> um, but frequently what I try to do with, the, with approaching these situations is um, – because I am trained as a political scientist and as a political philosopher, I try to understand what's the system that's going on behind this or the driver motivation. And the um, there's so much anger in the country, and not just specifically in this country, but there's so much anger. Um, anger is a really useful political tool. 
um, incredibly useful political tool. Mm-hmm. And so I went back into Aristotle's rhetoric and was just rereading uh, one of the chapters in my dissertation draws pretty heavily on that text. So I, I know it okay. And um, the things that he's talking about, the use of anger um, as a political tool for people giving speeches, um, is either one of the most powerful tools you can use or the one of the most destructive ones. Um, it really comes down to the judgment of the speaker. So as I, I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings as much as I could, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I was watching that and Dr. Ford. The biggest thing I noticed is that everyone's trying to use that same emotion and um, mm. n- no one's being particularly good at it. Hmm. But if both sides are able to um, elicit that kind of anger, it's got to be coming from something. And uh, where I ended up going with, I think, in that thread was um, both sides feel like they've been dishonored. And that's the most useful motivation for generating anger or a kind of anger for Aristotle. Um, So that's where the thread came from. And is there a way in your mind to either frame or pivot that anger toward reconciliation or not even reconciliation, but towards something constructive rather than the state that it's being used right now. At least I'm seeing it being used right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's where going to the, actually the American political thought would be useful. I didn't do this in the thread, but so I'm, I'm just going to spin off of it here. I suppose the, in Federalist 10, um, Madison writes basically that the greatest danger for a self-governing system is faction. Um, where two groups or multiple groups um, aren't just against one another ideologically um, or philosophically, but are actually opposed to the other one having political opportunity, um, destroying their access to the rights, undermining the protection of the government that it's supposed to exist. And I don't think we've gotten to that part yet in America. We, we haven't got to where Democrats or Republicans are running and saying, we're going to block Democrats or Republicans from voting next time um, or purposely making law undermining the rights of the other group. But we definitely can say that this is the most partisan we've been in a long time. And what I think going on is both sides feel aggrieved um, in a way that isn't constructive but because there's not an incentive for civility. Hmm. Um, the One of the faculty members at my university has been studying this in Congress, that the destruction of civility can actually explain most of the, um, or at least a, a large portion of the dysfunction in Congress, which on its face makes a certain amount of sense. Um, and so as you degrade those sort of norms, um, Either the people that remember the norms get angry or everyone just gets angry because they feel they've been disrespected. So the only way I could imagine something like this being constructive is if the anger is redirected toward a third party. Hmm. And I don't mean a political third party. I mean something outside of the political phenomenon, Um, some sort of major tragedy or some sort of event or a massive war, something like this, um, in order to redirect the anger outward instead of inward. Um, hmm. Though I do think in that thread, I also point to what how Aristotle thinks that anger can be mitigated, um, which is you're either afraid of the person that caused you harm, which I don't think we've got to the point to where the parties are afraid of each other or the members in them, or we have to pity. Um, or I, I like the term empathy more. I think it's closer to what the Greek word is. 
um, but they, that's a semantic, I suppose. You have to say that I can, I could imagine myself in your point of view or from your condition, and that's going to mitigate the anger. Um, so in some ways, the partisan divide and this to the reaction to the debate has been so perfectly illustrative of this. We don't know how to think of, from the other point of view. Um, we can't. It's either you either completely agree that Dr. Ford was 100 percent correct or she's a liar. And there's no in between anywhere because um, nuance isn't terribly useful politically, mm-hmm. at least not right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is a big problem that it seems like it, the, in this state of our country to be civil uh, you might come across as weak or you might be seeding strength by not going right. for the jugular and not stirring up that that passion. But if nobody is really able to use that passion construct, constructively, then we're just going to keep on tearing each other apart. We're going to need a third party. Whereas, right. is there any way for us to not go in that direction? Or is it just, <laughs> is there so much momentum in your mind going on right now that there's no way to release that anger other than mm. throwing it out. Of- yeah. So, um, again, I'll, I'll jump back into, um, my toolkit. I suppose Abraham Lincoln has a speech, his first major political speech, um, his address to the Lyceum, the young men's Lyceum in Illinois, where he talks about, um, the anger that's tearing apart the country in his youth. Um, and so preceding the civil war, and how the, at one point the passion that had held together the founding generation being forged by the Revolutionary War, um, that passion that was directed externally to the British enemy had turned in on itself. And now instead of being forged in the, the heat of um, a great enemy, now we see each other as enemies. And that the only thing for him that you can resolve to is, is reason. Um, you have to leave the passion out of it. Um, that the only thing that we can see is a connection between us is the law. And um, there's a certain amount of wisdom in what he's saying, that um, if you're wanting to rely upon the transient nature of passion to forge together an identity or to forge together a political motion or um, a nation in general, you're going to have to constantly keep having crises. And you're going to have that are external to any particular partisan group. And that's no way to govern. <laughs> and it's no way to create a stable republic. So the only thing you can rely on is something that um, isn't transient, and that's the law. Um, and hmm. so I think that's a useful thing to be reminded of. We do have an infrastructure set where we can rely on this. Um, Mark Lilla has a book. Um, about the once and future liberal, uh, if you've come across this, not, it's not a very long book, where he says, and he's arguing against identity politics, but his uh, the the point still stands. You have to rely on a foundation of citizenship. You have to see the that tie as the primary tie um, through the law, n- not um, I think abortion's bad. You don't. You're my enemy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Instead, there has to be something that underscores the partisan division, like a process that, or the process of law or a procedural. Um, I deferment I struck, of passion into something yeah. external to the two parties that are arguing. So that I struggle with this a bit. Um, 
there's another is at Harvard, uh, Michael Sandel has a really excellent book on this, Democracy's Discontent, um, from the late 90s, where he talks about um, because we put so much faith in the process of making law, or we see the law at, through the, the lens of like a bureaucrat, um, instead of the law as something that you live, um, it's, it's a set of regulations or procedures not a mindset, um, what we end up doing is breaking apart on these um, partisan lines about bureaucratic instances. Instead of seeing the law as something that's a little bit more, metaphysical is the wrong word, um, a little bit less procedural. Um, it's something that's more connected to identity than to a specific bureaucratic practice. So I think in that way, he's talking more along the Lincoln line. The law is something that you do. Um, it's something that's a kind of lifestyle. Um, it's not just how does, you know, the schoolhouse rock thing. How does the bill become a law and, you know, these very narrow procedures. Um, and, and I suppose the, the way I, I would frame it is the law is something that everyone has to own. You have to have it. Um, it's not just something that you interact with when you get caught speeding or something. Okay. Um, hmm. Right. But is... Is reason out of reach mm. of the human being? Is there mm -hmm. any is there any way to make a culture that's built out of something as abstract as codified laws? Man, you go you cut right to the jugular, don't you? Um, <laughs> yeah. um, this because that's that is the the big question. So there are, uh, and I'm sure you're completely familiar with Steven Pinker and Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and the debates that have happened between these guys, in particular between Peterson and Harris. And I think that's the question they're actually arguing about. Hmm. Um, how much can I, your identity be based on your reason um, mm -hmm. versus how much can it be based on something that's irrational? And um, again, because I, I tend toward the ancients a bit, um, using reason as a foundation for identity um, may not be terribly functional, um, particularly for the masses. And, yeah. and I don't want to sound overly anti-democratic there, but it no, may be true. It's, it's, it's not just, it's not the masses as in like the, the, the large amount of idiots out there. It's not that. Right. It's that um, when we're all interacting as a mass, we are necessarily yeah. uh, dumbed down because everybody's, specialized in a very small thing and we're all amateurs in most of our lives so as a mass we are a mass so i don't think it's necessarily an elitist uh thing uh, just... though there is there is certainly a part of it that is elitist um mm -hmm. in the sense that well you have to if you're going to argue something based on merit you're inherently going to be an elitist okay. yeah um right you, you have to um hmm. so the but the thing of like about citizenship citizenship isn't rational. Um, it, it's basically a construct of where you're born. Um, it, we test that and make it a little bit more fluid in the past century, century and a half, maybe. Um, America is incredibly unusual in that regard because you can opt in. Um, and hmm. so the mass has sort of gone that way. But citizenship going like all the way back to the ancient world was a consequence of birth. Like yeah. for the Athenians, both of your parents had to be an Athenian. Um, the Romans only sort of like tear that apart when they need more soldiers to go die against the Germans. Um, mm. And so they expand it outward. But it's really a set of um, cultural practices, a certain amount of biases and prejudices. Um, 
And I don't think those words are bad. Um, you need to have certain prejudices. You need to be prejudiced against like prejudice, so to speak. Mm. Um, right. Up to the point where you become too bigoted against bigotry. Right, 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 right. And that, um, yeah, the question really is how how educated is your prejudice? Um, hmm. You know, um, it, like hmm. uh, Richard Dawkins or something, it clearly has a prejudice against um, theistic thinking, but he has it grounded in a certain um, educated structure where he sees it as an educated form of prejudice, which is fine, right? It's a justified way of thinking. Um, you can disagree with him too, right? You can be a, a pious fool or an impious fool or the opposite. Um, mm -hmm. And, but a step, I'm trying to go back to your question, I've meandered off of it. Um, can we use reason here as a means of doing it or, or, or overcoming the passion? I don't know that there's an alternative. Hmm. Um, the, the question ends up being what kind of reason do you rely on? Um, and again, the Federalist here may be useful. The best we can probably do is self-interest. Um, it's going to be more harmful if we continue going down this path than the alternative. Um, huh. But I'm not sure we'll be able to reason ourselves out like through a mathematical equation. Yeah, um, but self, yeah. self-interest is something that you can reliably rely upon. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, right. That's right. Right. We're always selfish. We can always rely on people to be selfish. Is that why maybe the quote unquote American dream uh, yeah. and that whole collection of values and, and mm -hmm. aspirations was uh, so effective for the period that it was? I, I see it. It's under attack a lot now. It's kind of out of fashion, but that seems like one narrative way of mm -hmm. of binding somebody to citizenship it, it's mm -hmm. irrational but it force it focuses your attention both on what you can get out of the situation and what you mm -hmm. can share with everybody mm -hmm. else sure um so by the american dream is always such a because it's so fluid it's such a fluid concept or term um I, I suppose I would say, because I think we're referring basically to the period after the Second World War until yeah. like 1980, right? Um, and what it's really helpful when the rest of the world's in rubble to to rise above something like that, right? Um, it makes it makes things a little more attainable. But there's also um, a systematic way of approaching it, where um, the sort of the, the to go at the 10,000 foot level and then come back down to the more specific. Like if you look at the way that economics are sort of distributed, um, and I think about this through someone like Andrew Carnegie um, or William Graham Sumner, these thinkers at the, in the, the end of the 19th century, how much wealth can be concentrated and still have people believe in the concentration of wealth? Um, and uh, like the fact that we're talking to each other um, through a device that allows us to communicate in real time where you're on the West coast, right? Um, yeah, about 2000 miles away. It's only possible because of a massive concentration of wealth and effort that's able to create the device and the infrastructure and the network that connects us. So um, there's a great benefit that comes from having a concentration of wealth, but the consequence of it is certain people don't believe it's possible for them. Um, so there's a certain uh, condition you have to be in where you say, um, I have the opportunity to also accumulate a massive amount of wealth and along with it improve my status in life because mm -hmm. it's not just the wealth, it's the honor that comes with it and the, the comfort. 
or I don't have the opportunity to do that. And in terms of the empirical evidence, um, I'm not. This is not my area of expertise, but from what I've come across on this, it's still pretty fluid. Yeah, you still have a pretty good opportunity to um, move between economic classes. It's just less fluid than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that and, fluidity might have been a fluke. Well, and that, and that, and this is an interesting. I think that's also true of the way we talk about the media, um, the the incredibly unusual concentration of information from the end of the Second World War into the creation of the internet. That's unheard of. That there were only three tunnels of information that you could get. Um, and now there's a countless amount and everybody's freaking out. Well, this is the normal condition or the closer to normal condition than it was prior. Um, there's another really good book on this post-broadcast democracy that talks about this, the, the really um, difficult nature of <laughs> our identities in, in a, um, a republic that's so thin. The citizenship in America is very, very thin. Um, what do you mean by thin? It's, it's based on principle, not on bloodline or soil. Okay. Um, it, right. So it's far easier to rally the uh, like Putin getting to rally the Russians into incorporating the Russian people back into a nation state. You can't really do that here because there is no such thing. Um, the American people is a set of principles or ideas, which makes it by definition very thin, but very permeable. It's how we can have such a multicultural condition. Um, <laughs> but to, to the way you rally that or, or the way you construct it is you have to all believe you live in the same place. And if you don't all have the same information, you don't believe you live in the same place. Um, so the American dream idea or you know, hmm. the happy days era of America um, may have been a consequence of uh, a deeply restricted access to information um, that everybody was sort of funneled through the same lens. So they saw the world in the same way. Um, that's all been shattered. Hmm. And hmm. so what do you do? Yeah. Um, in one of your articles on Aereo magazine, you talk about uh, a condition of uh, sympathology. Yep. You're, you're critiquing identity politics. And, uh, it, yeah, well, yeah, that's how I say it's manifest right now. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, in a sense, the um, identity politics, or at least progressivism, was initiated, or this this current wave of progressivism was initiated to make uh, opportunity uh, more permeable, uh, to mm -hmm. give more people access to opportunity by calling yep. out roadblocks in that opportunity. And yep. some somewhere along the line, it's turned into uh, actually attacking what makes the principles of America permeable. Those those mm -hmm. uh, now they're focusing more and more on the white male, like having mm -hmm. all the power, and we need to take mm -hmm. it away and redistribute it rather than right. rather than making that construct of whiteness and maleness not matter with regards mm -hmm. to your economic uh, rising and, and falling, they're making right. it matter more and more and more. So it seems like, like it, in, it might've initiated towards making it more welcoming and, and distributing the wealth more, but now it's, it seems like it's making a misstep by making it, uh, by, by focusing the angst on an enemy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, Again, I want to go go up to ten thousand feet and then come back down if I can. Um, so the the like the modern iteration of progressivism, um, at least the American version of it, the you know the beginning of the twentieth century, the end of the nineteenth century, somewhere in that ballpark. But it's drawing from eighteenth century ideas, like the German philosopher Hegel, um, who argues that you know history is fundamentally progressive. It's a working out of these dichotomies, mm -hmm. these 
self-dissolving um, contradictions. And um, that gets in some ways picked up by Marx, and then that manifests itself in that way. Um, and I, I, we don't need to go into that, um, mm -hmm. not too much. But, but its influence has been, you know, profound, especially in the academy. Um, and from my understanding, you, you've seen at least the grandchildren of this effect yeah. um, at, at Evergreen. And, but what's interesting in some ways about postmodernism is that it has to reject – it rejects the idea of any grand narrative, which means it has to reject the narrative that history is by definition progressive. Um, mm -hmm. So it, in some ways, we're working towards progress that um, isn't inevitable, so there's a sense of urgency, right? Everything's a calamity all the time. Hmm. But what are you progressing toward? And like this is one of the problems that in Marx that – you know, what does it look like? Well, you know, we'll figure it out when we get there. Hmm. Okay. So what you're really arguing for is change, not progress. And you, you get trapped in this condition where, um, you know, like when Dennis Rodman was always changing his hair or whatever for the cameras back in the 90s, everybody got excited. Oh, my God. Well, that's not really progress, guys. Hair color doesn't make him a better basketball player. <laughs> and the... And so I see some of that um, manifesting itself today under the label of progressivism. Yeah. Where when you compare that to the, the progressives in in um, America in the 20th century, the early 20th century, it's very clear the things that they think progress looks like. It's more democracy. Mm -hmm. um, it's the expansion of voting rights. It's the temperance movement, which everybody gets pissed off about, but that's part of it. Um, it's also the eugenics part, uh, the purification of the species that comes out of the progressive movement. Uh, Buck v. Bell, the Supreme Court case, is an interesting um, part of this. Progressivism isn't all good. Um, there are parts of it that are deeply dark. Social Darwinism is part of progressivism. It's a deep, it's this sort of dark under part of it um, that the Nazis grab a hold of, and rightfully we call it bad because it's bad. Yeah. But the um, so that part of element in progressivism they want to we want to run away from um, because of its association with um, with Nazism. But, but there's this problem. What, what does the ideal human being look like? And, hmm. um, you know, and the Enlightenment asks us that question, assuming that we can get one. And progressivism also asks that question. What what kind of ideal person are we looking at? Hmm. I don't know that the modern iteration has a good answer for that. Um, and so in the piece, the sympathology piece, what what I end up asking um, or, or at least um, examining who is worthy of your pity um, I think is really the question of that, that whole essay. And um, again, I think the, the identity politics piece is the word that this is the most manifest, but we, we already saw the, the, the inverse of this would be with Nazis. Jews aren't worthy of pity. Yeah. Right. So it's not, it's not something that's specific to identity politics um, or, or the modern progressive version of it. Um, instead, it's, it's more of a question, you know, who's disgusting? Yeah, who's worthy of antipathy? Yeah, right. It's whoever's disgusting. You can't you can't have pity for this. Um, so when it comes to the the identity politics, the progressive side, the stuff that happened at Evergreen or um, that happened at Yale or all the other places where this has gone on. What's um, happening right now on Twitter? What's happening right now in yeah. current public discourse? Yeah, Is right. This no one has any idea about anything because <laughs> um, if you ask him what what makes this bad what's power well what is power right it's, no way it'll be something about language or it'll be something about um uh vested history right um 
And you, you go, and you're well, talking about like the assaults on Kavanaugh because of his identity group or because he's elitist or is that what you're uh, no, referring to? No, 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 no. More broadly than that, um, to the question of white male, um, okay. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what in those things necessarily make it bad? Um, if, if you can't give a one sentence answer to that, I'm, I'm not sure you understand why it's bad. Um, and if, especially when it starts to unspool against a little bit of examination, um, it doesn't seem so much to be, um, how, I, it's difficult to phrase this without coming across as completely rejecting it because there are criticisms that come out of postmodernism that can be useful. Um, and not that all of the whole system is, but some of it can, well, why are we thinking about it this way? Or why is this interpretation better than that interpretation? Yeah, These yeah. Of things. But when it comes down to the relative, the radical relativism and the profound skepticism, well, it's going to destroy itself. It has to. Um, and I think what we're seeing some ways, um, in this is a quest for identity. And, and I use that in a really broad term. Who am I and where do I fit? And what the university really does a poor job of, and I think education more broadly, and the, and the culture because of it, uh, we're, we do a horrible job of teaching people that. Um, how, how do I make friends? Who are my friends? Hmm. Um, how do I you know, understand the various relationships that I have with all the people I interact with in my life? Um, identity politics in a certain way gives people very clear lines that are delineated. This is good. This is yeah. bad. Um, and it's a really useful hat you can put on. Um, the problem is that the lines aren't, they don't make any sense. Um, and um, the, like the idea, and again, so I'll, I'll go through the piece, the sympathology TV for a second, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, where, um, so uh, the word cosmopolitan is um, especially used by liberals today as a good thing, right? Cosmopolitanism is the, sort of the goal. Um, if you believe in the, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, um, that's an incredibly cosmopolitan document. Um, and this is, is good. Okay. But the word um, cosmos from, from the Greek um, means to be well-ordered, right? It's also why it's the root of the word cosmetics. Um, but it can also mean to be superfluous, to be too ordered in a certain sense. Hmm. Um, but it also means to be homeless. Hmm. Um, someone who's cosmopolitan isn't grounded in anything. You sort of just float around. Um, and so as hmm. there's this drive to become more cosmopolitan, to be a citizen of the world, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, if you're a citizen of the world, where's home? If, it can't be the world, right? That's who, who are you going to fight for? Who are you going to die for? Right. Um, and so that's one of the things I, I try to talk about in there that we're naturally tribal creatures, but we're trying to make ourselves into a tribe of cosmopolitans. But those two words are inherently contradictory. Mm -hmm. um, and what identity politics does sort of grabbing from the Marx tradition is seeing everything in terms of a class distinction that's not bound by any sort of um, political system, right? It's not that all the white people in Britain have to rally together or whatever. It's across the planet. And so there's a cosmopolitan element in it that dissolves politics. Um, hmm. And so along with it, it dissolves any conception of localized identity. Yeah. So 
what I often see in these students is um, my identity is under attack or um, you're uh, denying my existence or whatever the hyperbolic thing is yeah. um, that um, and and for a certain um, sort of sense that's that's crazy because no one's actually gonna like harm you especially if you're at Yale or something but the uh, the underlying sort of psychology there is I think what they're actually saying is I don't know who I am mm. and I don't know how to go about making who I am. Hmm. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to latch on to sort of the most superfluous things I can grab onto um, hmm. my skin color, my genitals, my faith, my lack of faith, whatever my gender identity. Um, Cause it gives you a sense of control. I think. Um, yeah, it seems like that comes with the cost of the people who end up, the, the young people who end up in that, uh, pinning all mm -hmm. their identity on these superfluous characteristics that they have, that's inherently unstable, because they, they're they completely superfluous. The, the, there's no work, well, I guess you can do a lot of work on your you know, your presentation of gender, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sure. You can, you can change your gender, put a lot of work into that, but it, it, mm -hmm. it completely relies on perception of other people. Other people need to see that you're right. this or that gender, that you're this That's or that right. race. And That's so right. I think that they end up gravitating towards more and more hyperbole mm -hmm. just to make it feel real. Like it, right. it gets into this feedback loop where this doesn't, it's not real. So I need to right. make it feel real. And, and right. it goes way out of bounds really quickly. The, the way that, yeah. Um, just thinking, I was lecturing last night on um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and I won't go too far into the weeds. I've, I've, I've been name dropping a lot in, the, in this talk, <laughs> so I don't want to do too much of that. Um, but Rousseau um, has, is perhaps the first and one of the most serious critics of liberalism and, um, he says that sort of the three main drives, or you could reduce it to be a little bit reductive to him. We can reduce things down to three drives, which are um, pity, self-love, and vanity. Hmm. And he's not entirely sure uh, in one of his books, uh, Emil, that self-love and vanity aren't the same thing. And what you end up doing is instead of having an independent kind of existence, you become completely reliant on the people around you to affirm who you are. And the reason that you, you do that is it feels good. People like to be told that they're good or they're awesome, right? And, hmm. uh, or that they're talented or the rest of it. And so you end up seeking out those things which inflame your vanity, but have very little to do with your life. Um, it certainly doesn't make you good, not for someone like Rousseau. And I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood as that saying that this is a Rousseauian critique of identity politics. I'm not going to go that far, but I, I would say that he sees that as a problem latent in liberalism itself, um, that it causes people to care too much about external goods, um, that you care about, you know, how nice, how, how tall is my grass in my yard? Oh, how nice is my mm. China set or whatever? How, you know, how nice is my car? That your value is determined on your material goods. He doesn't go so far like a Marx, but he does say that there's a big problem with this because you confuse your material good as your moral good. Um, and that this sort of undermines itself, you know, um, just because you're wealthy, it doesn't mean you're moral. Mm -hmm. um, it, it actually, definitionally, it couldn't for him. So uh, if for people who are engaging in this kind of g gender construction, the question for someone like Rousseau is, well, would you do it outside of society? Um, right? Would you engage in this kind of activity um, 
disconnected from the network or is this a direct consequence of the fact that you live in a community that cares about vanity and that what you're trying to do is engage in a kind of um, uh, recognition of honor. You, you want people to recognize your goodness, so to speak, so you perform this kind of vanity um, instead of saying, well, the act itself or, or um, hmm. the drive isn't connected to your vanity. It's connected to your pity for another or fundamentally for your um, self-gratification or something like this. And it... Uh, so what what could we could take out of that, I suppose, for some sort of use is um, people who are engaging in this kind of gender construction, which like Judith Butler's argument on this, that gender is performative. Um, I, I'm not sure anyone can completely dismiss that, um, that sort of gender exists or sort of sans interaction. Well, no. Mm -hmm. But is it only that <laughs> is the question? And um people who are engaging in this kind of thing, um, the, the question really is more of a psychological one than a political one, so I'm not gonna go into that too much, that's not what I study. But there, there is a political ramification to it, which is um, when you atomize to this point, when everything becomes so holistically individual, how do you have any concept of we hmm. um, or us? And I think you see this connected in the language of allyship. Um, I, there, there's no friendship here. There's no concept that we can be friends across the divides that are whatever. The best we can do is engage in a, a, a mutual benefit in the war. Um, yeah. And um, how, how isolating that must feel mm -hmm. to someone to think that their entire interaction or their entire life is predicated in the conflict, um, that there is no conception of establishing friendship. Um, and the problem with that, the main problem with that, that in my studies on the situation at Evergreen is that it's so you're so divorced from your own self-worth that your actions don't matter anymore. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how you act. It, you can mm -hmm. be as uncivil as possible. You can even break laws because mm -hmm. somehow you're no longer chained to personal responsibility. You're you're only chained to uh, just that becoming that perform performer that actor mm -hmm. that, that can mm -hmm. is beyond judgment somehow on the, on the stage. And I, 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 I keep trying to understand it from the, the, their point of view. So I want to try to be as generous to every point of view as possible. Um, and so in reading through Butler's book, which I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of this derives from that, her, her argument almost seems to be that um, parody which I think is what they're doing. They're engaging a kind of parody of the majority norms um, is righteousness. Um, it, it's a kind of, it's the only means one has for dismantling systems that are unjust. You can't go through and tear it apart um, directly. The only thing you can do is sort of render it irrelevant by parroting it, um, mm -hmm. sort of using comedy or um, irony to, to dissolve these institutions. Um, and like Martha Nussbaum has an scathing rebuke of this. No, 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 no. If you want to change systems that are unjust, you got to go do something, right? Go get elected, go change the law, um, act in, involved in using the system. Or if you think the system can't be remedied, you have to go through and overthrow the thing. And that doesn't seem to be there. There wants to be a notion that we can um, save a corrupt system by parroting it. 
because hmm. just by engaging in parity, we're going to reduce the injustice or something. Hmm. And the best way to sort of do that is to slowly go through and dismantle um, these systems. Um, but I don't actually see, and I, again, you know the Evergreen position far, far better than I do because I don't have that direct experience. But it doesn't seem like anybody's calling for the destruction of the university. Um, it's really the problem is who's occupying the positions of power. Yeah. Um, and so it can't actually be that the power vested in the institution is the problem. It's the people who are using it. And it's not how it's being used. It's merely the person that's using it. And so that ends up making, going back to our original conversation uh, about the law, it means having rule of, in this case, uh, gender fluid people um, instead of the law, right? You could have rule of man or rule of law. Well, mm, in this case, okay. it's not man, it's going to be a gender fluid person. Um, and th that's the appropriate way of going um, about this or remedying the injustice. I, I've, I've really been struck by it because I don't know how, and, and I hope if somebody watches this and they can direct me to a good paper essay on this, I don't know how the thing which is the cause of your oppression, with you, so your gender or your, um, your new yes. biology or your race, whatever, is also the means to your liberation. Huh. I don't know how it can be both. Um, how being a woman or being African-American or whatever is um, both the cause of your oppression and the means to your freedom. Um, I don't know how it's not always going to be a cause of your oppression. I don't know how it's self-liberating. Well, if, that if, makes if, if it's the cause of you being able to oppress other people, then maybe it's it'll solve your oppression. So that's Right. So that's the Marxist interpretation, right? Um, that the problem with the proletariat and the bourgeoisie is you just got to kill the bourgeoisie. <laughs> um, right. Uh, and so the proletariat now gets to oppress itself um, and right and establish yeah. the dictatorship of itself. And uh, you go, OK, you're not going to live in a liberated society then. Um, right. Yeah. Well, how do we how do we um, to, to go way back? To go mm -hmm. back to civility, which I think I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is injecting empathy back into the conversation is learning more about empathy and communication rather than oppression and privilege. The mm -hmm. key towards uh, unifying us and finding my me and our we at the same time. Yeah, so this is good. Um, this is a really good question. And um and I want to think about it in terms of um, the theater, like in terms of movies and TV shows and this kind of stuff, because, boy, that gets people riled up now. Right. Who, who gets represented and who is doing the representing? Yeah. And um, like that gets okay. I mean, all kinds of anger and consternation over this. That's not a question of what kind of character should you cry for? Right. It, it's really whom is being represented and doing the representing um, the assumption of empathy there, which is the question of who do you cry for assumes a kind of universality to the human experience. If you're framing everything in terms of who's being represented, it doesn't by definition, it won't. Um, and perhaps there are absolutely legitimate concerns regarding representation and especially in a multicultural society. Um, I, the Hamilton musical is, I love this musical. It's fabulous. Um, it fundamentally asks that question. Are you capable of crying for someone who doesn't look like you? Um, and if you've ever been exposed to it, the answer is yeah. Oh yeah, you can. Um, and it doesn't matter because it's, it's fundamentally the, 
the story is so deeply human. Um, but I think there's also a, a more political side to that, which is um, can a multi multicultural people or multi-ethnic people cry for itself? Um, mm. Can you get white people to cry for black people, black people to cry for Latino people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, hmm. um, and that's really a question of representation because hmm. Alexander Hamilton was, you know, he was not Latino um, or Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr is as white as Wonder Bread, right? Or not anymore. He's dead, but he was. Hmm. And the, so that's not even a question anymore, right? That element has been removed because you've changed the person that's presenting the character. The question is, are you crying for the character or are you crying for the person presenting the character? Right. And, and so I think that's where in this, I think this is why the um, people who are frequently active on like Twitter get really angry about this. Um, they're asking the wrong question. So when it comes to civility, um, can you engender in people um, a kind of empathy for those who aren't like them? And um, at how far can you push that? Is that is the limit? Uh, you're at the level of the political. Is it the level of the family? Is it the level of the race? Is it the level of the class? And there's not a clear, very good answer about this. It's frequently um, because this character is uh, non-white. Then the person presenting it, or um, like with the Scarlett Johansson one, she's not trans, right? Um, does that require that the person playing that, in order to understand the nature of the character, come from that point of view, right? Um, that, in a certain sense, films mean to be more like documentaries um, yeah. and not fiction. Well, does that limit our capacity to create stories that we are going to cry about or laugh over? Um, can you only make movies for black people that have that are made by people who are African American, um, for people that are African American of a particular walk of life that engage in particular kinds of things? Well, then that completely destroys the capacity to empathize outside of that system or imagine, yeah, right, and that. So the the question on, on the political level about civility, I think, is really a cultural question. Um, because I don't know that you can engender political civility or a political kind of empathy if it's not being reinforced outside of the halls of power. Within culture, uh, you're saying. Right. Um, I'm not sure that the two things can necessarily be untethered. Well, um, the thing is, is that one of the key actors of the Evergreen protests, uh, mm -hmm. one of his refrains or their refrains, and he's parroting... Uh, the teacher Naima Lowe, who is one of the largest, uh, one of the biggest uh, act actors from the faculty in the whole unrest, that you can't understand me because mm -hmm. I'm I'm black and you mm -hmm. you have no idea what it's like to be me and mm -hmm. I, I'm black and then I'm also uh, queer and then I'm this and I'm that. It just mm -hmm. it it reinforces this separateness, mm -hmm. which right. is aimed towards sacredness. By which I mean, you can't even touch me. You can't judge right. me. You don't know me. You can't touch me. Therefore, you have to follow what I say. You have to let right. me redesign the system. And so, right. on on a on a, that art, there's that leap from the art. Well, the the empathetic into the political. But right. by, by which I mean, there's somebody that you can't know, and therefore there's somebody you have to obey. 
because right. you don't right, they right, right. know you don't know and robin mm-hmm. d'angelo with the whole white fragility myth if it's mm-hmm. even strong enough to call a myth is mm-hmm. just trying to reinforce that you can't know these people so basically you have to let me guide you into being servile to them uh, right right the, the the standpoint epistemology stuff yeah um right right the, yeah and um I probably should be careful with some of this because this is not the major thing I study. Um, and so I want to hedge everything in this that um, some of it may be more speculative than it should be. And I probably should bite my tongue. <laughs> um, and but what I would um, I suppose what I would say trying to understand this, um, I'll put on my Aristotle hat for a second and try to understand this because um, he argues in his in his politics that all cities are made up of a plurality. Um, it's not an extended family. You're not all like going to be necessarily you're not blood related. Um, you may be related to your tribe structure um, or for us, you know, the ethnicity. Um, and that's where the word comes from. Ethnos means the people or the, the tribe. Hmm. And that um, you may be connected there. But in order to live in a political system uh, for him, the city, the polis, um, you can't just have one. Uh, he's arguing against Plato on this, that, that you shouldn't actually want it to be one. That's mm-hmm. not good um, because <laughs> that's fundamentally not political. It's, it's a family association. So when you're having arguments that are at that level, you're not actually engaging in things that are political. You're moving the political down into the level of the familial, into mm-hmm. the level of the, of the family, which doesn't surprise me since the, the sort of the, the banner cry for 20 years is the personal is the political. Um, those two things are getting fused together in the sense that like now, um, everybody talks about ideology as the only measure of, um, worth in some ways. Uh, and you'll see this on Twitter all the time. I'm a liberal, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, what the hell that is, or whatever, right? All the other elements that go along with it. And it's just on and on and on and on and on. And that actually doesn't really tell you anything about that person. Um, right. And, but in somehow that's the new banner that we take and, and run with and uh this the identity politics effort is to say which one of those banners is legitimate um is it the race is it the gender is it like which one of these do you hold up to say that's legitimate and then which one of them are worthy of uh, recognition mm-hmm. again i think it comes down to a question of who who gets honored and why yeah so you exactly. pointing it to the question of the sacred i think is absolutely right um that i don't go so far to say that it's a uh, new religion. I think a lot of people do. I think you draw the parallels to that in some ways. And I think you can see the structure that's certainly there. Um, there's no way of redemption and there's no way of life. Um, really, the kind of, How do you spend your Tuesdays as an identity politics religious observer, right? Um, there's, I, don't, I don't think there is one. Um, and the uh, so what you end up getting sort of left with is um, if everything is to be is about inflamed ideology, and I actually hate that word um, because I don't think it means what it what we say it means. Because like an ideology would be understanding the forms, right? Understanding the nature of things um, would be an ideology. These are um, ideocrats, people who think they have power in their knowledge or po- power. Oh, in their okay, yeah, whatever. And um, that's what they're doing. It's, it's a contest. Not only do I know what the truth is. Because I know the truth, I have power, yeah. and I should have power, right? And um, any questioning of the truth is uh, an act of injustice. 
it's it's a it's a going against the legitimate exercise of power, and um, mm-hmm. and people want to attribute that to the postmodernists, but that's really the question of political philosophy. Yeah, it's, um, it dates back, right? But it's like who who what is power and who gets to have it, um, yeah. and and who gets to use it legitimately? That's always the question. Mm. Um, Right. Because power is something that's sort of ubiquitous with human beings. It's going to be in every society everywhere. And someone's going to be using it. Those are empirical questions. Whether it's legitimate or not, that's not an empirical question. Um, That's something that goes beyond mere observation. And I think that's really we don't know. We don't. How do you justify the legitimate use of authority if you think all legitimate uses of authority are oppressive? Yeah. and well, there's that, there's that level, and then there's the the divorcing or the the prizing of characteristics over character. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at characteristics: uh, white, black, uh, male, sure. female. Instead of looking at like what kind of a person are you, which I think mm-hmm. is more of a literary uh, question or or mm-hmm. a moral question or even a, a religious question, like sure. by which I mean you need to have a story, you need to have a narrative where these different characters can, you know, uh, articulate themselves. Uh, upon whatever background you choose so that we can start to identify what are good characteristics and what are bad characteristics, not on the outward, very surface level, but like in, in uh, dialogue with another person or in relationship to another person. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The, the union archetypes and this kind of stuff. Yeah. In, um, in a way. Yeah. And, um, no, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think I agree with that in a, in a certain sense. Um, John Rawls, you familiar with Rawls in the theory of justice? A little bit, yeah, theory of justice. Um, so the the question ends up being, um, I want to address that one, but I want to let that process in the back of my mind for a second before I make a fool of myself. The <laughs> um, for Rawls, like a question would be, do the characteristics draw upon you um, bad things, right? Oh, yeah, okay. um, right. And I think in that sense, this is where I think the, the movement of um, identity politics and this push that starts in the 60s, this is the part that's absolutely legit- legitimate and no one should, should disregard. Um, that if the distribution of goods or the distribution, we could say even of justice itself, is, in, is limited by your characteristics, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. It's fundamentally yeah. incorrect. And that has nothing to do with your behavior. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. If you're being mistreated because of your skin color, that's fundamentally wrong and um, or a violation of justice. And so if you have a system that's built on this, for example, I, I um, ask my students here, um, <laughs> if you ever fly over the Midwest, what does it look like? It's just like a little patchwork of squares. Yeah. Right. And why is this? Well, because of two acts that were passed in under the Articles of Confederation, the uh, Northwest Territory in 1785 and 1787 said that they, these things have to be laid out this way because you have to have a common schoolhouse every so far. Yeah. Now, if you fly over the South, it doesn't look like that. It's these massive swaths of land, these huge partitions. Well, why do they need that? Well, because they needed it for the plantations, right? Mm-hmm. So even the geography itself has this built into it. Okay. The question ends up being, <laughs> do those large swaths of land today in the counties uh, or the squares in the Midwest, uh, does that affect the distribution of justice? Well, no, right? How could it? Um, hmm. 
you'd have to go pretty far into that to say that it does, even though its historical circumstance absolutely is predicated on it. Yeah. Uh, right. So there's that question that goes along. And I think that's where you you can diverge from the absolute legitimate concern with the inappropriate um, application of justice based on your characteristics. Right. Um, uh, don't listen to women. They're hysterical. Right. Well, that's wrong. <laughs> Fundamentally unjust. Um, but then you can go in and say, well, women weren't listened to in the past. Therefore, they have to be listened to now. Yeah. I don't, that's a non sequitur. Um, right. You would say that the act here is unjust, but the act in the past doesn't justify the current condition mm. where, char- where character becomes a question um, really act- is at that, the point of that individual locus. Right. Um, that's mm. really where the concern is. Um, mm. If you have framed your understanding of character through this lens of past characteristics, yeah. the level of the current character doesn't matter. Right. It, it couldn't. It would say, no, that that doesn't matter because the decision making has already happened prior to the event. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so now the debate really is how how deeply embedded are you in your history um, and how much are you a consequence of historical forces versus not? Well, and that's different than being knowledgeable, being embedded. No, no. Is being oh, yes. Different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. That's that's right. Um, well, because it actually and that the level of an action, it wouldn't matter. Right. Um, it would be the historical circumstances have, are as such that your prejudice or your biases exist even beyond your knowledge. You, even if you don't know you're engaging in a way that's prejudiced, it's still prejudiced. OK. Um, right. I think that's I'm tr- again, I'm trying to best understand that perspective and what, where that the I would say the gap in the argument that happens between them happens in that situation. Um, People who want to understand things purely on the question of character um, have to understand an event sans history, right? Um, Or as an isolated incident. And people who don't, uh, from this point of view anyway, are going to say, well, the individual action doesn't really matter. It's a question of historical circumstance and condition. And the question ends up being, well, at what point do the sins of the father not descend to the child, mm-hmm. right? Um, how much culpability do you have for your ancestors? How far back do you go? Mm-hmm. And like, this, this is the Burke problem. You keep going too far back. Everybody is horrible, right? Yeah, yeah. There's no good human being. Everybody's horrible. So how far does the culpability go? And um, this is where something like, uh, in Judaism or in Christianity, or in some ways in Islam, the Abrahamic tradition, um, there has to be a way of expunging past sins, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, otherwise, how do you ever move forward? And um, that's where I think this sort of question ends up becoming, if it's immutable, if my existence as a white man will always cause oppression, there is nothing I can do ever. Um, the well, best you can, I can kill yourself, right? Right. Well, but that's a ridiculous notion. <laughs> right. Okay, that that's out of. The... <laughs> yeah, I mean, cause how could that ever be? Uh, how could that ever be a just system? On on its face, it would have to be. You know, but I think the argument is what you can try to do is dismantle uh, the systems that give you that uh, uh, oppressive power. I'm not in particular sure how you're supposed to do that if. By using the power and dismantling the power, I'm still vested with the power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
So I'm not, I guess, unless I destroy the whole system. But again, this comes back to that condition with Evergreen. They didn't want to burn the school down. No. They, they just wanted to change who was using the power. So there's sort of yeah. two end goals that are mutually exclusive. I don't know how you reconcile them. Um, but it, not- it, it works in a very myopic, very hyper emotional environment that makes sense in a very in a very compacted, immediate, urgent environment um, right. to organize power in that way. But it, it's totally ridiculous anybody removed in space or time or culture from them looking in. Looking in at Evergreen, it, the, at least that, that three days of protests, it, it, they're so novel to so many people. They don't make any sense. And I've spent mm-hmm. a year and a half like trying to unspool that, and it all comes back to these other ideas that just met the perfect chemical reaction in that moment. Right. And um, so if you don't mind, can I ask you a question? Yeah. On, on how... What was it like to, because I've watched some of your videos on, on this um, and the deconstruction that, that you've done through it. Um, how, how do you do this? The, the level of um, hostility that seemed to have been present, um, did you know it was coming? Or was it something where you woke up and went, this is fireworks on campus. Where did this come from? It, I, I wasn't, I was in the periphery of that. Uh, okay. The, the main protest day where they blockaded the library, I was in the library when they did that. And then my next class that weekend or that the next weekend, um, the, it, the, the entire dynamics were replicated in mm-hmm. the classroom and I wasn't totally surprised, but I wasn't not shocked. I, w- I was shocked mm. because of the way that the power was being wielded. Uh, it was mm. handed to them by the, the professor handed uh, three students of dark complexion the power. They proceeded to decry and attack everybody based on their characteristics. When one young woman got really confused because she was demanded that she speak because white silence is violence. And then mm. she's like, well, what do you mean by that? They told her to shut the fuck up. And, and so there was this, and then they started toying with her until she started crying. And then they started laughing yeah. at her. Yeah. So yeah. it was just it's a pathology, right? It, it was, to, it was, it was, yeah. it was just like, uh, it was, it was very disturbing that mm-hmm. to watch that because they, they were, they were having so much glee in that. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I'd, I'd seen that before I'd seen it. And then I, I saw like all the talks on privilege. I saw that repeatedly repeatedly the white man the white cis heterosexual man complete right. uh, repeatedly bagged on and laughed at and mm-hmm. joked at and if you were one you needed to apologize so it was already in place everything was already right. in place in that all you needed was some char- charismatic people and then spring the spring energy and then a bunch of hormones and then there you go so it, it sounds like you just described the French Revolution, but on a much smaller scale. Yeah, yeah, no, it like, was. It was absolutely. All, all of the pieces were there. It just needed the the spark. Yeah. Um, the thing that I, the thing that I suppose for, for me, I look at this and I go, this could have been a really noble endeavor to make people care about those that don't look like them, that don't think the way that they do, the the way that they don't have sex the way that they do or have their same relationship to sex the way that you do. It could have been incredibly noble in that way mm-hmm. to expand empathy, but that's not the path that was chosen. Um, that and, was not the path that they were set upon. And right. That's not the path and, of privilege. When, when you start talking about anti-oppression and privilege, that is, that is by definition, it's unempathetic 
Like right. in training, in training courses, they would make lists of who has the most privilege, just yeah. like the freaking Hitler would do. And you just like, you, you name all these characteristics, which is anti empathetic. So I, um, I, <laughs> I usually try to run away from comparison to the Nazis. Um, okay. I'm sorry. I, it's, it's cheap. It's no, no, cheap no. blow, but like, it was just amazing that that's right. I was watching that happen. Well, and, well, because you can also see it in the people that did phrenology in the 19th century do the same stuff, right? Um, yeah. Human beings like to make categories. Yes. Um, and we like to attach meaning to the categories, especially moral significance to them. Yeah. Um, but what you could do, and, and I think this is where the, in some ways, the Marxist underpinnings of some of this stuff become a big problem, because I do think that's right. The, the only way that you can go um, after a fellow human being devoid of any moral content is if you make them disgusting. And um, that that fundamental... And having the attributes of someone who is listed as as disgusting, um, it's not like anybody goes, "Oh boy, that feels good," <laughs> right? It's not it's not a good thing. But I also have been incredibly lucky in. I mean, I've only ever gone to state schools, and I've taken sociology classes. I've been exposed to some of these ideas. Um, like we learned about white privilege, and we learned about these kinds of things. But the, the notion was never um, – it was really more of a question of individual responsibility, not collective action. Mm-hmm. And um, again, that's a way you could have made the effort noble. Recognize the condition that you have and the position that you have and be aware that not everyone comes at it from that point of view. Okay, right? That can be something that's useful. It can be illuminating. But that's the starting point, not the ending point. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big difference perhaps in, in what shifts from – having this as an academic point of view versus an activist point of yeah, view. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and the problem is you, you, how much culpability do, do academics have for their ideas that get manifest in a way that they didn't intend versus how many of them created ideas that they knew would be manifest in this way. <laughs> and, right, so where does the moral culpability lie there? Um, yeah. And I... That is way above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to try to do that whatsoever. Um, but it's and, not just academics. Within colleges, uh, academics are having less and less power. Administration right. and student life. Yeah. Student yep, life is what's having more and more power. Yeah. And uh, yeah, your HR departments, your hiring processes, your um, the way in which students are brought in, um, well, you know, for their uh, first days, they're opening seminars. Let's go. Oh, yeah. Um, and but that didn't happen in the vacuum. Um, no, and it had to have had, yeah, it has traction because of the ideas which preceded by 20 years. Exactly. And, um, so you end up becoming in this untenable condition, um, where, why, why do you go to school and right? What's the point of this whole stupid thing? Why, why do we give people the first 20 or 25 years of their lives to sit around and learn stuff? Yeah. You know? Um, you're going to spend a quarter or uh, more of your life, like learning about chemi- like Avogadro's number in chemistry or something, okay, or trying to understand what these equations in physics are. Or you can take a class from me, and I drive you crazy by asking, "Well, why do you think that? Right? <laughs> why do you believe this? <laughs> drive you nuts? And uh, what's the whole point of this thing? Right? And uh, what I think that this is fundamentally seized on, there's an answer to that. Um, you know, Jonathan Haidt had that essay a couple of years ago about the two um, telloi, the two ends of the university, and yeah. um, that one you can create activists, the other one you can sort of create scholars. And um, I think what what's really missed is no, what's supposed to be produced are citizens. Yeah, right. 
that's the, what's the point of a public education unless there's a public benefit. Yeah. Um, and uh, just have all private schools and just go back to the model before we were paying for this stuff publicly. Yeah. Um, and that's very freaking Greek of you to bring it back to it citizenship. Is. It, it, it is. Um, <laughs> and well, cause I'm not sure there's another way. I don't know that there's a better identity to latch onto than that. And, hmm. uh, people will argue, you know, the critique, I suppose it's going to come from, um, a postmodernist or an identity politics person is, well, of course you're going to say that because you're vested with the power. Well, the point of citizenship is that all the citizens are vested with the power when they're not, that's a concern for all the citizens because then that means my power can go away too. Yeah. Back to that self-interested point of view, right? Yeah. Um, I have to care about, this is the, the Martin Luther King notion, right? That injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. His is a more of like a human level, but at the level of the citizen, that's, that has to be true. And, um, okay. yeah. right? Yeah. So, but how do you teach people to think that way? Instead of approaching power itself as the problem. Yes. And um, because power has to exist. Unless no one would want to live in a condition where there's no power because they're near and hob state of nature. That's the problem with if you have too much equality, everybody becomes a barbarian. Right. And because mm-hmm. then everything just comes down to brute force. Right. Mm-hmm. I'll take what I want. The only thing you can do is kill me. And that's unless- a big problem. Unless it's all arbitrated through computer programs and everybody's just plugged into a video game all the time. And we can constantly live in an imaginary, uh, mm-hmm. you know, paradise. Yeah, the lotus flower cycle, right? Where you can just sit around and get, like, digitally high all the time. Yeah. Um, but then, well, then uh, then that's another kind of equality. It's an, and it's an equality of a kind of emotional slavery or psychological mm-hmm. slavery, right? Mm-hmm. I'm completely dependent upon this thing. I have no freedom. Um, okay. So hmm. both are bad, right? Um, yeah. And th- this is where Tocqueville is useful on this because, like, equality is absolutely necessary for living in a free society. Too much of it can kill you, um, mm. and uh, in either in either kind of direction. But uh, this is where asking that question: Why are you even doing this, or engaging in an education at all? Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, back and forth on um, the importance of a liberal arts education, um, and and what exactly is that thing, mm-hmm. and. Because Evergreen is a liberal arts school, right? And from everything I've picked up on, the way that they approach pedagogy and curriculum is like some of the neatest things that you can do. Um, and the the deep immersion, the way in which you think across curricula, um, you sort of degrade or make porous the distinctions between the disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you're, so you're trying to think more broadly. Um, that's fabulous. I mean, that's really... I, I, it's it, a wonderful model. Tell- that I didn't have that going to school. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I was lucky because my undergrad advisor went to Rutgers in the seventies and they were doing that in the seventies there. Hmm. So he taught me to think about everything through that porous conception. That's completely idiosyncratic to me that very few people are going to have that experience unless you go to a school that's designed for that. Yeah. But by breaking down the silos, you uh, in some ways could make yourself susceptible to systems of thinking that have already destroyed the silos. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, um, hmm. but, but a liberal arts education sort of speak is, um, you know, is it a little bit of this, a little bit of that, the cafeteria model? Like I'm going to take a little bit of Shakespeare. Uh, I take a little bit of Freud. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to take uh, a little bit of African history. I'm going to take a little bit of uh, Asian pottery, right? And I'm going to get this sort of 
cosmopolitan education, as my advisor would say, I can learn how to order French fries in Italian, right? So now I'm a global citizen, okay? Um, okay. Um, is that what it's supposed to be? Or is the liberal arts, again, going back to the antiquity, I mean, the, the phrase means uh, the skill of being free, the skill of living a free kind of life. Um, and what does that mean? Does that mean you all have to be philosophers? Well, that's a disaster, right? <laughs> that doesn't work. Like philosophy is not good for politics. It, it, too many, they kill Socrates because of this, right? You ask too many questions and the system starts to corrode. But a little bit of that. But a little bit of it's okay. And, but liberalism in some ways sort of wants us to think philosophically without being philosophers, hmm. um, to be able to analyze and deconstruct. And the more democratic you become, you have to, in some ways, trust that you can educate people to make good decisions, right? Not that they can do mathematical um, proofs or that yeah. they can go through and do analytic philosophy or any of this kind of stuff. Because, like, the goal of a citizen, um, this, again, going to Aristotle, I think he was right on this when he's writing in the fourth century as, he, as it is now. The goal of a citizen is to make good choices. It's good judgment, to have correct opinions, Right. Which means there are bad ones. <laughs> yeah. And the process you have to go through is learning how to weigh different claims. Yeah. And so the and goal assess of different are, stimuli. Right. 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 Especially in and, the Internet age where there's all these different opinions being thrown at you. That's what I was. And to learn which one of them are bullshit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the most important thing. This is completely incredible. I can't use this. And uh, but so then in a certain sense, the goal of a liberal arts education is. Uh, to make citizens, to make people that make good decisions. Yes. And the way you do that is by engaging with various ways of thinking and trying to understand uh, the different claims on things. Where, And I have another essay or another piece on this that um, the problem is that where you go critical thinking and scientific thinking are the same thing. Um, I think that's an error that we make because scientific thinking is based on it doesn't like having competing claims on the truth. Um, right. There, there is like there is it's either right or it's wrong mm -hmm. or it's in a system of transition where we're not actually totally sure. Mm -hmm. um, like modern physics is a good example of this. Like we can understand the cosmic level and we can at least give a pretty decent account on the quantum level. But you put them together. Yeah. Um, right. OK. Um, and this is where it's not terribly surprising to me that if, if our physics can't even give an account of, of reality or a unified account of reality, uh, is it terribly surprising that people can't give a, an account of them, right? That they can't ground themselves in an identity if everything is fluid. Um, mm -hmm. So that's not terribly surprising. But what, what we end up getting in tr trouble with is assuming that because there's only one right answer in science, there's only going to be one right answer in politics or in culture. And what really is, there are competing answers that both could be correct. You just have to choose which one of them is better, yeah. um, right? Uh, the, the 2016 election is a really, I think, an interesting example of this. Um, well, because it lies up um, basically with your assessment of Evergreen. It's like, um, not, I wasn't, I didn't go, oh my God, how could this possibly happen that the major candidate for one of the major parties in America gets elected president, right? What are you talking about? Of course it could happen. Yeah. But, but it still wasn't, it's just shocking. What? Right. How, how did this happen? Um, and it's fundamentally because everyone, well, it's a wash. What does it matter? Right. If, if Democrats, oh, and, uh, she's not pure. I'm going to vote for Jill Stein. 
or um, she's got some corruption, he's got some corruption, everybody's corrupt, what does it matter, right? This sort of thing. That's an abdication of the decision-making process. And that sort of defeats the entire purpose of having a citizen. Um, mm. If you, I, don't, I can't make a good choice, whatever, just I don't care. Um, mm. And if, if education isn't going to teach you the ability to make that distinction, and I don't just mean the university or public education, this is also going to come from your culture. It's going to come from your faith or not your faith, from your family. Right? The whole system has to be sort of engaged in this, um, which is why I come back to that, that issue of citizenship um, and the law as an identity, not just as a process. Um, it's something that like reside, the way you think about the world is, is grounded in that understanding um, because every sort of facet of you is influenced or informed by it. Um, and I don't know how there could be anything more important than that to teach people if you care about living in a free society. Um, if you don't, they don't care about it, right? Mm -hmm. Just get, just be uh, technocratic. Just, uh, just worry about this. But, um, mm. if you do care about it and, and want things like, um, if you want free speech to mean more than just barking at the moon, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. where it has some sort of, you have to then say speech has meaning. Um, and that we can discern between what claims are good or bad when both of the claims can be legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, and in it where it's not a methodological critique where you go, well, this one has bad methods, throw it out. Instead, it's um, should taxes be 41% or 38%, right? Well, there's a method for going through that's consequentialist, or there's one that says um, the way in which we approach the distribution of wealth should err toward the side of concentration or decentralization. Mm -hmm. Both of them can work, right? The question is what kind of value set do you want to extend out of that choice? And you have to be able to at least think through, does this one more align with my values or that one? Um, and then make your choice based on that. Not like something, I don't know, one of these stupid things like, oh my God, he put mustard on a hamburger. Or, oh my God, he wore a tan suit or, the, the, the president likes his steak well done eating with ketchup, right? Who cares, yeah, right? Yeah, but, yeah. Like, those are value things. It's idiosyncratic. Stephen? But, yeah. I'm really sorry. I have to get to my job. I have to... Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I I to keep this you. is beautiful. Can we do this again? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I... I make, my life is in talking, so I'll talk all the time. <laughs> You're really, really good at it. <laughs> well, thank you. You're a master. Um, uh, well, I don't know about that. I have a lot to learn. But no, I'd be happy to. Um, this is fun. I enjoy this.